I've kept communication to a minimum. I called my mother from the lobby and asked her to please pass along the verdict to the family. Then I texted Gina and Paco, but decided to speak to all others tomorrow. Instead, I drove straight from the courthouse and supervised Ben's handoff to Rabbi Cohen at my mother's place. Then I walked home. There were multiple voicemails, and I started with Paco. Courage, my friend! We can't control the fucking universe, but we can control what it does to us. I shut off the phone and stretched out on the living room sofa. That's where I've been for hours. In fact, I have no idea what time it is, though, judging by the opacity of the curtains, the summer sun has all but set. Now the doorbell rings, and I jump up fast. The lights are off, so I quickly consider sitting quietly in the dark. Instead, I open the door and find Gina standing on the stoop wearing shorts and the Mets t-shirt I bought her last week. I realize now that Gina and I are through. I simply don't have the energy to continue. A Chevy from 4-1's car service pulls away from the fire hydrant. We do this for a living, the driver noted when Ben was born. Hey, Gina says. Hi. She tries a partial smile. Sure, I'd love to come in. Thanks. I follow her in, and we both sit on the sofa. If it weren't for the refrigerator in the next room, I might think I was deaf. She moves closer and takes both my hands in hers. Don't be pissed at me for doing the drop-in. I had to. Uh, I mean, I called, texted, emailed, DM'd. I was going to try smoke signals. Uh Uh-huh. She squeezes those hands. I know your heart. It's aching. It's in pieces. I know. It's the worst day of your life. My heart hurts, too, because I love you, honey. I only want for things to get better. I shake my head. Things ain't getting better. Gina tries hugging me, but my posture is too rigid. I wasn't going to leave you here alone. I don't know exactly where we are, what phase, plateau, what it's called, the name, if it has a name. I just know I should be with you, and I know you should be with me, and I can't let you cocoon like this, alone in the dark, like Boo Radley. I shrug. I would have called you tomorrow, Saturday. I want to be with you now, when you need it most. I'm okay. Honey, people in love, they're there for each other in real time. They don't go off for a few days and come back. That's the whole point. It's good and bad. You don't do it solo. It takes a tremendous effort to speak and to speak clearly. Soon my voice, my my instrument, my calling, this voice will fail me yet again. You shouldn't see me like this. I mean, tonight. Let's talk 
the weekend. Gina shakes her head. No, honey, it doesn't work like that. If I were hurting, wouldn't you be with me? I quickly nod, sure. So why can't I be here? My eyes are closed. Gina, yes. Gina, cause you're not gonna like what you see. She moves my head with both hands, almost a wrestling takedown, and rests my face on her chest. Then she whispers, I love you, Mike. I'm not leaving. I'm here, honey. You can't get rid of me. She pauses, then says it again. I'm here. I'm starting to shake, and I almost pull away. But I find I finally lost all my strength. The tidal forces overtake me, and I use my last reserves of energy to fall against her and wrap my arms around her. I give in to her, and I give in to what I've been carrying for the last day. And now it's all coming out. My entire body lurches in her arms. Gina strokes my hair, kisses the top of my head, whispers of love and devotion, promising she'll stay with me forever. I have no choice, and even though my eyes are shut tight, I hold her even tighter. Blindly, I trust her. Now I finally had sleep to digest the court's decision, and Ben's decision as well. I step outside with Gina, still wearing her new Met shirt, and we behold a beautiful morning as I prepare to drive her home. Just as it did on the night Ben was born, amazingly, the world is functioning pretty much the way it had yesterday. The papers are signed and notarized, and we finally reach the point I thought we might never reach. We're done. I take a last look at the Honorable Rhonda Westfall. In my courtroom, unless the mother is a prostitute or on crack, She's always awarded custody. We step into the hall as both attorneys excuse themselves for restroom breaks simultaneously. I can't recall the last time the defendant and I were alone together, but I find I have nothing left to say. It's a year of changes for me, my son, all of us, and not just the summer. As 2016 slides into 2017, it's all about change. From the Chicago Cubs to Donald Trump. I'm served with papers again, hopefully for the last time, and start paying 17% of my salary in child support. This on top of Ben's medical and educational expenses, and maintaining a second home for him, an additional bedroom, food, clothes, books and on top of raising my newly adopted child. Some things I know. After these four summers, my life could never return to that particular hellishness of 2013 through 2016. A cooling process occurs, and I'll attempt to broker peace through Gina, Casper, lawyers, psychologists, rabbis. As much as I can, 
I'll make a conscious effort to live outside her sphere. At times, she'll flare up in small and petty ways, like inserting the hyphen. Occasionally, I'll need to fight anger, particularly so it doesn't spill over to my wife and son and daughter. But I'll learn to disengage. Paco will say, She's a walking anger management seminar. You should pay her. And I'll reply, I do. Often I'll feel pity for her and wonder what was really churning so deep inside her when I had no idea. I can do nothing to assume my son's burdens, so I'll watch him struggle. But Paco's words bring comfort. She too loves Ben, and he'll always find means to broker peace. We'll call upon the village, and the results will be mixed. We'll encounter dishonest pediatricians, weak teachers, and cowardly rabbis who won't always align with Ben. But we'll also encounter caring people who intuit my son's specific needs and assist him in finding his way. And I'll be forever grateful. Back in court, we insist they live no more than 100 miles from Queens. Yet, even as we negotiate, they're an escrow on a house in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, close to the small college where Casper teaches, and 97 miles from Queens. As usual, Wayne was dead wrong. I went home with the waitress. We'd both done big weddings, so this time we exchanged vows barefoot in the sand on Long Beach Island at sunset. My best man was considerably shorter than me, but the maid of honor was even shorter. We were married by a justice, though my cousin Desmond gave her high praise, and Mo and Elliot even booked her to officiate for them. Then the photographer lined up all my mother's grandchildren for a beautiful photo at the water's edge. Tommy and I exchanged bittersweet glances, knowing what a Christmas present it would have made. There was dancing by torchlight under tents Tommy and Terry erected in front of the rented house. Katie and Mo twisted, while Paco, who did indeed wear that ascot I knew was in his closet, tangoed with Annabelle and Gina's mother. Thankfully, the bride talked her friend Sherry out of pole dancing. Archie was invited, but wouldn't come. Sam took over for the DJ and spun Rock the Casbah. Late in the evening, after several kids and my father had fallen asleep, my two brothers poured three shots of Jameson. Being a secular humanist is one thing, but even I'd never drink Protestant swill like Bushmills. Kevin smiled at Gina. Her dress hiked to her thighs as she danced with Ben. Tommy indicated Ashley stretched out across two chairs with flowers still in her hair. My brother toasted me and my family, reminding me just how lucky I truly am. And then, a surprise. Gina produced her guitar and sang to me. I learned later she consulted with Ben, and he made the suggestion. The one about the people. In my life. Soon after, Ashley really did become a Jersey girl. Now it's a Friday night, and I'm scheduled as per Queens County, which retains jurisdiction even in another state, to meet Casper for a drop-off on the turnpike. At work, 
I noted cold fall weather arriving, so I brought Ben's winter coat. My bankruptcy filing prevented us from securing even a Veterans Affairs mortgage, at least for now, so instead we leased a three-bedroom condo in Freehold. The rent is high, thus continuing the great American tradition of punishing the working poor by increasing their monthly expenses, and I've got child support and those student loans and debts to my family, but we're managing. We selected Freehold not because it's Springsteen's hometown, but because Gina secured a job teaching 7th grade English at an excellent middle school there. Together, my new family and I chose to be closer to Ben in Cherry Hill. I see more of Sam, but less of Mo, while Gina sees more of her sister in Montclair and less of her mother in Forest Hills. Ultimately, it seems everything comes with caveats, both good and bad. My son will be a teenager before I stop worrying his mother will move him yet again. Gina says I've muttered Hag in my sleep. It's a later pickup than usual. A truck jackknifed near the Molly Pitcher stop, where the Jersey Turnpike man undoubtedly was gobbling fries and dispensing legal advice. Ben was barely awake when I strapped him in at the halfway point Casper and I long ago calculated via Google Maps. Casper's a lot grumpier these days, apparently because the Garden State wasn't in his long-term planning, and somehow I am to blame for him not seeing his kids in Israel. Imagine that logic. I found insanity often bubbles beneath fragile surfaces. I drive and steal glances at Ben in the mirror. As we pass the turnoff I take for work, I conclude our weekends really begin Saturday mornings, not Friday nights. My new boss at Trenton Mercer Airport also served at Keflavik and said Bob M. raved about me, so we bonded in the lobby. Initially, I thought her unaware of my LGA mishap, but she shrugged. They call them near misses, not near hits. After I explained joint custody, she allowed me off during Ben's visits, so I'm free until meeting Casper on Sunday. And I've decided to give back by joining the union's mentoring program. It's dark and cold, and the muted dashboard lights lull me into thinking, once again, about recent history. We pass the river, but the windows are sealed, and the water only pantomimes motion. The wheels beneath us churn up the miles that separate. On our honeymoon, Gina revealed something's bugged her. Back in Kew Gardens, I said my favorite subject was English, so why study psychology? I didn't have an answer, though I considered it for days. Finally, it hit me. My desire to analyze my fellow air traffic controllers is not nearly as acute as my desire to write about them. So Gina registered me for a creative nonfiction workshop at Rutgers, one of the best gifts I've ever received. And I shared pages from this journal. When we read The Things They Carried and spent an hour discussing metafiction, during the break, the instructor and I took another 10 minutes deciding if these pages are fiction or nonfiction. It's hard even for me to say, just who is this Michael Mullen? Does he even exist? And will people reading this very page flip to the author's photo on the jacket and look at that Irish-American face and ask the same thing?
Am I trying to convey truth or truth? How much does it matter now, years from now? Fiction is often the best fact, stated William Faulkner. Of course, he also stated, the past is never dead. It's not even past. And credit where it's due to my wife on curbing aggression. Gina suggests we modify punch buggy to earn points rather than punches for Volkswagens. And the one with the most points picks Saturday's movie. On the other hand, we strongly encourage Ashley at their karate dojo not to be the cutest warrior, but to be the fiercest. Also, I listened to Kanye, and although I'm no fan, Gina's right about some lyrics, like the one about the friend's daughter getting a brand new report card, and all he got was a brand new sports car. Daddy? I'm startled. I had not even noticed the boy was awake. I look at him sitting behind me on the seat. I feel quite alone, but this boy has been with me. I wonder for how long. Hey, buddy. I can see in the mirror his eyes are still closed. He's groggy and fighting sleep. He'll be out again soon. Daddy? Yeah? We gonna see the baby? I turn on the heat since fall is definitely here. You mean mommy's baby? You saw him today. The other baby. Ashley? She's at our house. He shakes his head. You mean Henry at Sam's? No. Oh, baby Charlotte, Aunt Chris and Aunt Katie's baby. Uh-uh, the new baby. Finally, I nod. You mean Uncle Kevin and Aunt Nicole's baby? It's not here yet, buddy. It'll be here soon. Okay. I adjust the heat. Lovey finally gave out, and we donated her to charity, the orange check engine light glowing till the end. We've leased an Azure Ford Escape with ample room for a booster seat and a car seat, and named her Blue. One day while I showered, Gina and the kids pasted stick figures onto the tailgate. A daddy, mommy, small boy, smaller girl. Late that night, I asked Gina why she didn't slice the boy into a seventh, and she gently stroked my cheek. How's second grade, buddy? Ben sighs, his eyes still closed. We're going to learn violins. Really? Sounds like fun. Will you teach me? Okay. Daddy, can we go to the graves? There's nothing like a child's segues, and I deftly keep up. In addition to all the over-the-top drama in his short life, this year Ben suffered his first loss of someone close, a grandparent. Yes, we could go. Grandpa Tom? I nod. Yeah, we could bring him to see Grandma Eileen and Aunt Lizzie. It all happened so quickly earlier this year. Katie shouting about chest pains and me running five doors down and both of us driving my mother to Long Island Jewish as per her doctor. In the car, I tried singing Love Me Do. We'd only been there an hour, my sister and I scribbling paperwork in the lobby, assuming we'd hear about a stent or possibly bypass when the cardiologist calls us in and said she was gone.
gone. We just got here. Katie and Chris picked up the infant Charlotte one week after the funeral. I miss Grandma too, buddy. We'll go before it gets cold. A growing list of chores. Registering for another workshop at Rutgers. Painting Ashley's new dresser. Bidding on that beloved first edition for Gina's birthday. Finding a boxing club as dingy as Archie's ring of fire. Scheduling Paco, since I'm down to calling him just once a month. Even by phone, his wisdom never ceases. Your son has taught you at least as fucking much as you've taught him. And Ben is asleep again. I know when we get home, Ashley will be asleep as well. But Gina will be up, wearing shorts and one of my oversized FAA t-shirts, and her dark brown glasses, because her contacts will be out. She'll be drinking coffee and grading papers to free up the weekend for the four of us. After I back into our condo's one-car driveway, I'll carry the sleeping boy and his school bag in my arms and tap softly at our door. She'll open it and kiss me on the lips. Then she'll gently push Ben's hair from his forehead and kiss him as well. She'll take him from me and put him to bed. In the kitchen, food will be warming on the stove. Gina will sit sideways on my lap while I eat, and she'll pick at my supper, and I'll tell her to go get herself a plate, and she'll say, no, I've already ate, and then she'll pick at my food again. Then I'll ask her to read the better essay answers on 1984. We might have one of our weekly spats, the one where I mention finding lint in the clothes dryer, noting it's a fire hazard, or the one where she traces carpet stains directly to my dirty boots. Eventually, she'll wrap both arms around my neck, and the room will become quieter. I'll move my hand to her bare tummy, and she'll frown and say it's getting too soft, and I'll say, are you kidding? Most women ten years younger would kill to have half, and she'll kiss me. Then my hand will continue moving, and she'll whisper into my scalp, What you doing, Mullen? When she kisses me again, I'll mock pretend her coffee breath has dampened my enthusiasm, but our roaming hands will belie this, and in retaliation, she'll mock pretend her feelings were hurt, and she'll breathe coffee all over my face, and I'll tickle her in the one place where I know the reaction will be immediate, and she'll yelp just a decibel too loud, and we'll freeze and listen for stirring from the bedrooms. Then we'll both laugh. Soon I'll check the windows and locks, and together we'll make two stops. In the first room, Ashley will be curled into a tight ball with only her dark hair showing, while in the second room, Ben will have partially thrashed off the covers so Gina will tuck in a bare leg. Then we'll move to our bathroom, knowing on Saturday morning four little feet will bounce on our mattress until we groggily agree to make my legendary blueberry pancakes or ride our bikes to the creek or go pumpkin picking and hay riding. But that's still hours away. I'll whisper from behind as Gina brushes her teeth. Then her glasses will come off and I'll kill the lights. Our lives are as rich as I could ever have hoped for on all days, but they're richer still on those two days when Ben joins us. Yes, he shares weeks in the summer and at Christmas. And yes, we attend the momentous events. We're present for Little League trophies, recorder concerts, awards nights. And of course, I call every day. 
but Ben is simply growing up without me. It's not fair, and it's not right, and it's certainly not justice that our time is so parceled. But we take what we are given. I know all this. And what of Ben? and New York State's oft-repeated goal of serving the best interests of the child. I consider it every single day, yet I find it difficult to determine. He bounces back and forth, back and forth, between two beds and two toothbrushes and two sets of books, toys, DVDs, clothes. Are the six average days he spends with her and Casper and the baby superior to the one average day he spends with Gina and Ashley and me? I truly can't say. My deepest hope is all his days are filled with love and nurturing. In the end, Ben was right to choose her and retain both parents. And I'll always believe he was right. All it cost was a part of my heart the one we give to someone on February 14th. But even though the state has decreed I'm to be one-seventh of a parent, I'll spend my life assuring Ben there are absolutely no limits to his father's love. I'm determined that he never regrets his decision. Of course, there's still so much I don't know. Yet, there's much I do know. And what I do know, yes, I do know it. I know this sweet boy will grow into a fine and strong and kind man. But just as I sat by his bed on so many long nights until he finally fell off to sleep, what I don't know is one day it will be Ben who sits by my bed, holding my weathered hand and stroking my thin hair, when I finally fall off on the longest of all nights. And this strong man will be humming to me, and then he will lean in close and sing to his father. In Dublin's fair city, where the girls are so pretty, I first set my eyes on sweet Molly Malone. As she wheeled her wheelbarrow through streets broad and narrow, crying cockles and mussels, alive, alive, oh. I will smile, or I will tell myself I'm smiling. Somehow there will be tears, I won't know whose, as my boy keeps singing, Alive, alive, oh ho, alive, alive, oh ho, crying cockles and mussels, alive, alive, oh. And suddenly, I have the answer to his question from years ago. Where did the love go? That love I felt for her and she felt for me. It was real. And it was here, and now it isn't. I know it existed, and nothing that's happened since, none of it, can change that. It was touchable, tangible, truthful. And physics has its laws, one of which is matter can't just disappear, not without taking another form. I loved her, and she loved me. We laughed at things that weren't at all funny, smiled while sitting alone, broke into tuneless song while crossing a parking lot. All that happened, and more, and nothing can change how I felt, or how she felt. I remember us lying together, and I remember the love as she stared into my eyes. Sing for me, Mikey. Sing? Sing what? It was a summer night in Newburgh, 
and we lay intertwined and spent. We had only recently met, and yet I felt I always knew her. My fingers danced along vital organs. Sing to me, Mikey, she breathed into my neck. But what? I held her tighter. Come on, Sarah. Her eyes closed. Anything. And so I began. I caressed her red hair, and her knee rose higher as the embrace tightened. I smiled, too, and my eyes closed as well. I sang of Dublin, and I sang of her. In Dublin's fair city, where the girls are so pretty, she smiled so beatifically, I truly believed my heart would never ache again. I first set my eyes on sweet Sarah of mine. So where did it go? Ben had asked me. A fair and valid question. And now finally, as I glance at him sleeping in reverse from the rearview mirror, I know, love can be transferred, but it cannot be erased, and it cannot be denied. So where did it go? Ah, buddy, you. That's where it went. All that love, it all went into you, buddy.